the verses we move on to, um, we'll talk about the perfect example of someone, the ultimate sufferer, right? The one who's who's nicknamed the man of sorrows, the one who's acquainted with grief. And the reason why Peter presents Christ as the ultimate example is that he's trying to make the case, right, that suffering is never for nothing, that it is better, like he said in verse 17, if, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good. And just in case you, you, you look at your suffering and for any reason you can trace it to your alignment with God, to the fact that you chose the will of God. He's saying that there is good that can emerge from that suffering. And the prime example of this principle is none other than Christ himself. So that he, he used the grand archetype, if you like, so that if Christ fits into the mold, then it's, it is possible that your suffering, my suffering, whether it is present or it is even past or it is anything that we are called to endure, for the sake of Christ, um, is worth it. It's going to produce good. Paul says that our light affliction, which works for us, um, which is only but for a moment, right? Second Corinthians chapter four, works for us, right? An exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's the design. God's design, God's intention is that affliction is supposed to work for you, supposed to produce something. But it is possible that affliction will be wasted in the life of a believer, right? That God will not get what he was hoping to get by allowing it in the life of a believer. And that's what um, Peter is wary of or is warning these believers against. And that's why he's building on this solemn point. Um, I believe that this is a study um, that may not directly be immediately relevant to you right now, or it may be, but I believe that it's definitely one that we need to revisit over and over again in the days and years to come. Okay. Um, Sammy, I see your message that you're ready to speak now. So let's get started. Um, thank you so much. Can you read for us then from verse 18 to verse 22 of First Peter chapter 3? Okay. First Peter chapter 3 from verse 18. Mm -hmm. And it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. That's Oh, pardon me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he sent, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the, re not the removal of the field of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Okay. Thank you so much, Sammy. 
So like we said, what the writer is doing here or what Peter is doing here, right, is that he's trying to um, set Christ as the ultimate example of the principle that suffering in the Christian life, when it is for doing good, is supposed to produce good according to God's design. The ultimate example of that is Christ. But even though he's going to compare our suffering to Christ, right, he's, he's also making a very clear distinction here as well because the suffering of Christ trumps every other suffering in its quality, in its intensity, and in everything about it. So he says here that Christ also suffered once for sin. Right. So this is one of the things that marks out his suffering. That is not a suffering that he continues going through. And this, and this is the first thing we see about the suffering of Christ, that it came to an end, never to return. The moment it, had com it accomplished what God was hoping it would accomplish, it came to an end. There is no more suffering for Christ. There is suffering in Christ, but there's no more suffering for him, right? He doesn't have anything else to pay for. That's it where we cannot crucify unto ourselves the Son of God once more. He suffered once for sin. And his suffering was so full, was so complete that he didn't need to repeat it. He didn't need to adjust it. And then the next thing he tells us about the suffering of Christ was that it was unjust. It, it, it wasn't according to the balances, right? It wasn't according to the right scales of justice. Because many times when we, when we undergo suffering for our convictions, right? When we undergo suffering for our faith, um, our first protest is that this is not right. This is not just, right? Based on my work with God, based on the things that I'm trying to advance, these things shouldn't be coming to my life. And we see that this was the ultimate case with Christ. He suffered an unjust trial and he died an unjust death. But in the midst of that injustice, God used it to create a platform for the legal aspect of our redemption. So because, because he suffered unjustly, the blood of his cross was now available, right, to avail for the sins of many because he was just. I've always said, that it was important in the heavens that the, that the testimony of every ruler that interrogated Christ was brought before the court of heaven and even before the court of men. Pilate, who was the final arbiter on earth, right, that determined Christ's fate, made it very clear that I find no fault in this man, even though he crucified him in the end. And it is because of that absolute righteousness that was in Christ that God could then impute that righteousness to us on account of the unjust suffering that he suffered. The point here is that the suffering of Christ was cruel. The suffering of Christ was undeserved. The suffering of Christ was the worst kind. It's the kind of thing you don't want to experience. Yet it accomplished something. The Bible says that he might bring us to God. So we were far from God. You and I we're far from God. I don't know how to put it better than that. Or, or to say that the human race is far from God. In our ontological state, we are far from God. And the thing that keeps us far from God is the righteousness of God. The absolute righteousness of God. That at the heart of life, at the heart of the universe, at the heart of creation, is a, is, is a moral being whose righteous nature cannot tolerate sin. Right, And so it's a futile thing for anybody to think that their good works is enough to 
earn favor, acceptance, or salvation before God. Your good works can earn nothing in the light of God's righteousness. So, and that's why each of us is born with a sense of emptiness, you know, with a sense of longing for home. It's as though from the moment we are born, there's a disconnect, right, between the one who indeed is our father, right, and everything else that you experience on earth. That's what it means to be far from home, to be far away from God. You know that there is a pandemic of orphans spiritually. If you think about it critically, you discover that spiritual orphanhood is the underlying principle behind every vice, everything that we call sin or that we call the flesh. The very first orphan, because who is an orphan? An orphan is one that doesn't have comfort, right? An orphan is one that doesn't have covering, the covering um, of, of um, parental oversight. And the very first orphan is the devil himself, right? Because he he separated himself from the covering of God. He separated himself from the government of God and insisted that it's going to be by his own way, by his own will, by his own method. That's the height of the orphan spirit, the sense of independence that doesn't, that doesn't lean on another, that doesn't submit to another. And that spirit is at the heart of practically every vice, every sin, every moral failure. It doesn't matter what shape or what color that it puts on before us. And if God is going to help you and I, one of the things he does to us, even after we have become Christians, is that he reveals to us that he is a father. Because if you do not know that God is a father, you will not experience his fatherly dimensions. Right? Your life will still be like an orphan, even though you are in Christ. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you without comfort. I will not leave you without a sense of acceptance. I won't leave you without a sense of belonging. There are many vices that flow from a lack of that basic need of being accepted, right? Of being, of being part of something bigger. It's an orphan spirit. And Peter is saying that they unjust death of Christ, even though it was unjust, is said to bring us back home, to bring us back to God. And we know that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then we get into the problematic part of this verse, right, of these verses. The verses say, by whom also, that is by the spirit, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So I'm going to pause here now and then ask us to contribute to this. Um, what is your take on these verses? Why, why, why is Peter suddenly punctuating this, um, <laughs> this very mystical story, if you like, or this very mystical allegory, if it's an allegory. What, why is it here and what does it mean? What is it saying? This is probably one of the most controversial, well, I wouldn't say controversial because there are more controversial scriptures than this, but this is certainly one of the scriptures that has the highest variance of interpretations that you'll find from among theologians 
Bible scholars and Christians. Um, and unfortunately, it has become also the source of some false teachings in the body of Christ. So what do you think is going on here? Anyone? Okay, if I if I may, yeah. Um, yes, I mean. Yeah, um, the part where he went to preach to the spirits in prison. Yes, what's going on there? Is it not when he died that he went like he went to the underworld or something like that? I'm, yeah. I'm thinking. I'm thinking maybe people like. Um, okay, Abraham is in the father's bosom. I'm thinking people like prophets of old or something like that. Okay. I'm wondering if these are the spirits he went to preach to. Wow, your I, voice is really gone. Second, sorry, I don't know. I'm I'm wondering if these are the spirits, like like maybe prophets of old or you know maybe people like Samson. Could those be like the spirits? he went to preach during the prison or something no they're not what he's referring to right um okay because the categorization is made clearer in verse 20 of who who is referred to as a spirit in prison so he says verse 20 who formerly were disobedient so this is not talking about any saint right and then it's not just any unbeliever. He's talking about when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. And also, the suggestion here is that Jesus preached to people who are dead, right? Even though, well, if you remember our study of the book of Hebrews, I think at Hebrews chapter 9, the writer made an unequivocal statement, right? That it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment you know part of why i wanted us to touch on this is that it's very possible for someone to um to read into this scripture what it is not saying such as praying for the dead for example that after death there is um there is some kind of mercy or there's some kind of chance or opportunity for the lost is that what peter is saying here right is that the burden of this text so that's what i'm trying to tease out Could I come in here? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, so thank you for pointing it out very clearly. I was jumping ahead. Uh, so from this verse 19 and verse 20, and if I'm looking at it from verse 18, it talks about that Jesus died bodily and his mm -hmm. spirit went down to preach to the spirits in prison. Now, verse 20 is the part that was very explicit. It said, who formerly were disobedient. So I believe, this is my own observation of this, is I believe these are all the people who, who did not walk in the ways of righteousness or in the ways of truth. Like you rightly pointed out, this does not include saints. But these mm -hmm. are the people who say from the beginning of, let's say from the beginning, from like, like you say, it's from the days of Noah. So say from the very beginning, you know, 
and he went because of the justice and the equity of God. So the Lord Jesus went to present, you know, the, the good news to them, you know, for them to have the opportunity. So I believe that's what it's saying. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that perspective. And this is also one of the interpretations of the verse. Um, I need to tell you that um, there's no right or wrong answer in this verse, to be honest. And the reason for that, because normally the scriptures are supposed to provide clarity, right? But the reason for that is it's very clear that Peter, whatever he's trying to say here, he's not trying to establish any doctrine about the dead. The gospel we preach insists that the best chance that anybody has to be saved or the only chance that anybody has to be saved is as long as they have breath and as long as they can choose. The parables that Jesus told about the underworld, right, which are some of the clearest um, snapshots of life after death that we have in the scripture, they make it very clear that there's no going back, right, once you enter the eternal state, once you pass from this life to the next life. So, Peter is not trying to um, establish any doctrine around what happens to dead spirits. That's, that should be very clear from the passage. But I want to give you a few reasons why that is the case. That's at least where to start from any possible interpretation. The first thing is that Peter does not quote any verse here, right? He does not reference any prophecy. He does not reference a revelation. Usually, if you're trying to, in scripture, when you're presenting something like this, that is not... Um, verifiable historically you know this is a spiritual truth this is a spiritual occurrence if you like um, usually even in this letter the writer will quote the old testament to back up their their um to back up their presentation with a scripture in the old testament that confirms that what is happening here is not strange god promised to do such a thing and this is the fulfillment of it so Peter doesn't do such a thing here, doesn't quote an Old Testament scripture that is being fulfilled. Secondly, when an Old Testament scripture cannot be quoted directly, usually the author states that he's speaking from Revelation. But Peter, once more, is not even saying that he's speaking from Revelation here. Not to say that he's not speaking from Revelation, but he didn't say so. So whatever it is that he's trying to say here is just a passing comment right? Whatever it is, because we don't know. He didn't give us enough details for us to be able to know what it is before we even attempt to decipher what it is. But it's important to lay that foundation that it's just a passing detail and there's no doctrine that should be built on this. My favorite interpretation of this scripture, which is not necessarily the correct interpretation because some people will disagree, but my favorite interpretation is the key word here is by the Spirit. Because the rest of the verse fits into a pattern that Peter is trying to build for us. Remember, Peter had said that there is suffering, right? And there is persecution. But I want you to be hopeful. And I want you to be holy in the midst of this suffering and persecution. And looking back on the Old Testament, who is apart from Christ. Obviously, Christ was in the new, but in the Old Testament patriarchs, who is the example, the clearest example of someone whose life fulfilled this pattern? And that was Noah, right? The same pattern that, that, that Peter is encouraging 
in his hearers to follow, right? God informed Noah that there was going to be a flood. The same way we know by revelation that there's going to be another flood and that flood is the judgment of God on, on the earth on, and on sinners. We know that just like Noah knew it. Then in Second Peter, Peter will tell us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So that gives us a hint, right, as to the hope that was in his heart. So the thing that made him convinced that the flood was coming, even though at that time there had been no rain on the earth, like Genesis records, yet he was convinced God introduced him to the righteousness of God. And he knew that if God is as righteous as he says he is, then he has no other option but to judge. And you see, the righteousness of God is one of the compelling elements that we're supposed to bring to the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul was anticipating his visit to Rome and he was like, the Romans have, have the politics, political power, economic power, social power. What is it that I can bring to the Romans that they don't have? And his only answer, right, was that there's a righteousness they don't have. And that's why I said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. That's the power that I'm bringing to Rome that no Roman has. It's the power of God for salvation for those who believed. For in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. The reason the gospel is powerful is that it reveals a righteousness that is righteous enough to satisfy the wrath of God. All of that to say that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so Noah's generation ignored Noah. And you can even argue persecuted Noah, even though he was a righteous man. And they continued like that in disobedience, in the long suffering of God, until the day Noah entered the ark. And so it was, you can say, and this is my interpretation, you can say that the spirit of Christ was at work in Noah, preaching righteousness in that generation. Because this is the only way I can explain why this is just a passing reference, right? It says that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the spirit. And it was the same spirit that quickened Christ that was in Noah when he preached to the spirits who are now in prison. It's a better way to translate that, right? And part of what I believe supports this interpretation here is that um, even, the, even if you, you say that you know, Jesus actually preached to, to people who are dead in hell, which I think is, is, an acceptable, um, is an acceptable interpretation. Nothing stops that from being the case. It's just that we don't have enough evidence to support it. But nothing stops it from being the case. The scripture doesn't tell us any outcome right, of that preaching. It was certainly not unto salvation, for sure, because it didn't say so. Instead, what it says is that these were formally disobedient and in the whole arrangement, only eight souls were saved. Not more and not less. So it's only those who were saved on earth that are still counted as saved in this permutation, essentially. But what he's trying to show us is the antitype or what he's trying to show his hearers is the antitype just as Noah persevered in preaching righteousness in spite of the contradictions, in spite of the apparent delay, right? That we too are supposed to persevere in preaching righteousness so that 
the waters, the flood that this that um destroyed the den world is now an antitype of our baptism, which now saves us. Does that make sense to us? Oh yeah, yeah, it does, George. I, I, could I also, you know, point something out? I feel, yeah. um, you know, just like you rightly said, I, um, Peter may not be, you know, directly making reference to a particular doctrine or anything of this sort. But from what you've explained, and I've just been looking at it intently, could it be? Could it be that Peter is trying to illustrate? or explain that the, the, the witness of God's justice and equity is, is that everybody gets a shot or an opportunity to hear the preaching of righteousness. Could that? Yes. Because I yes. think from, from the way this thing is going, the emphasis is not on whether those who were preached to, like you said, were saved or not, but the idea is that everybody like he talks about one extreme which is Noah's time which is like the best example of preaching of righteousness and then he talks about another extreme how that even in death even in death of the body Jesus still preached righteousness so that like God's justice goes across nobody can deny that you know they receive they do not receive the preaching of righteousness something like that yeah, yeah, but in that case, the the preaching of righteousness will be futile, right? If it if it doesn't, if the people who are hearing it do not have any possibility of responding to it, but it's but it's still a valid possibility, right? Remember, we started by saying that we don't know what he's saying because he didn't give us enough details, right? In fact, yeah. some people, some school of thought by respected theologians, actually say that the simplest way to in interpret the scripture is to believe that exactly what we're reading is exactly what he's saying, that when Jesus died, he went and preached to the spirits who are in prison. That that's exactly what happened. And Peter makes it very clear that this is not all the spirits, right? He has a very narrow, narrow focus group, right? And that is those who were destroyed by the flood in Noah's time. And the argument there is that if there's any generation that has any excuse before God for not having a chance to repent, if you like, it was this generation. Right? So there's that school of thought that God gave them another chance in death. But you see, we cannot defend any of that from these verses. The verses are not saying that, right? Yes. All, all of that is, is, is trying to understand what the verses are saying in, in that sense, right? So whether Christ went into the, the prison and preached to the dead, whether God did a special dispensation of salvation for these dead, the point as Christians to note is that this is not a pattern, right, that justifies or sets a doctrine for praying for the dead. And one of the things that, at least we can be sure that that's not what the scripture is saying, right, because everything that happened here is past tense. Right at the very least, this is a reporting. This is not a laying the foundation that anybody can live as they want, because then the message of righteousness will be contradicted very strongly by saying that something can happen after death that can change the destiny of a man. So, like regardless of the of the 
specific interpretation line that you that you take, which is completely fine, actually. It's important to, to hold that clear balance, right? That his intention here is not to establish any kind of doctrine whatsoever. And the best that we have is an unclear statement. Um, and most interpretations of it fit in. How is that? How does that sound, Sammy? Yeah, makes makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Okay. I hope it's clear. It's clear for everybody else. Um, yeah, and I encourage you if you want to do a study of the scripture to to to, to do a broad study. You will see a, a wide range of interpretations on this. But the most important thing is to keep this whole conversation in the, in its context. Right? Peter is saying, persevere in righteousness, even though everybody around you does not believe or does not agree, and the same happened with Noah. In his generation, God suffered long with that generation, and yet they didn't repent. But the flood eventually came, and only those who were in the ark were saved. And that's where verse 21 picks up, that there, there is also an antitype which now saves us. The same way you can say that Noah was saved through the flood, baptism, right, which is not the physical dipping into water remember when we did the doctrine of christ we said that uh, in god's design natural things are supposed to have an interface as are intermingled with spiritual things so that when when the motive right and when it's right and when the spirit is present a natural um, material when it is used in a certain way according to god's prescription can carry spiritual potency, can, can, can be a channel for a spiritual reality. And Peter is saying that your baptism was an answer in heaven. God used your going into water to answer a question in heaven. And we looked at what that question was when we looked at the doctrine of baptisms, right? And Peter says it's the answer of a good conscience towards God. So in case someone asks you, must I be baptized? The simple answer to that question is, God is asking you a question, and the answer to that question is baptism. And that question is, what is going to be your response, right, to, to what Jesus has done? What is going to be your response to the exchange that has happened on the cross? And God does not want a verbal answer. He wants, he wants you to, to illustrate it by going into water. And in God, in his sovereignty, has determined that by that action, he's going to be able to achieve things in the spirit. I've heard countless testimonies of people who were permanently, finally, completely separated from the occult only after the physical immersion of water. It's not as though physical immersion of water by itself has anything to do with separation from the occult. But when it is done in obedience to the command of God, God uses it to answer questions in the spirit. And so your baptism is the answer of your conscience to God. That God, when I went into that water, I identified with the death of Christ. And when I came out of it, I identified with his resurrection. So sin and death and Satan has nothing for me and on, on me henceforth. Okay. And then it tells us that we can be assured 
of our faith in Christ because Christ has gone into heaven and he's at the right hand of God and angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Okay, it took us a while to get through that. So let's then move on to chapter four from verse one to verse six, Sammy. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who was suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should leave the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. You will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Yeah, thank you. So I don't know if you can highlight some of the gains of suffering here, right? That stand out to you. Um, or maybe let's not start from there. Let's. Let's, let's just speak up. So he's saying in verse one, that right, therefore, since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. Anytime you see this kind of expression in scripture, arm yourself, arm yourself. You know, you cannot arm yourself unconsciously. You cannot arm yourself as a passive affair. Arm yourself is saying that you need to make a commitment, right? You need to resolve it in your heart that I'm going to endure suffering. That's, it needs to be a resolution. If you don't resolve in your heart, you are not going to be able to endure it. It could shake your resolve. It could shake your confidence. But you need to arrive at the place where you said, if, if it is true that God can heal, but he refuses to heal this sickness, so be it. Right? If it is true that God can deliver, but he refuses to deliver me from the flames of fire, so be it. says, arm yourself. Because you've seen that Christ has suffered, that he didn't resist suffering, that the fact that he suffered didn't make him any less the son of God, right? That he wasn't suffering because he lacked faith. He wasn't suffering because he lacked power. Suffering was in his life because God allowed it and God eventually used it for good. He's saying, have a mindset. Have a commitment to endure suffering. So in the last days, friends, in the end times that we're living in, we need to make a decision to endure. Right. Stephanie, your hand is up. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> this gospel of suffering is very difficult for a lot of people. I mean, I've just been um, engaging with someone who has been suffering for i mean for four months now and you know in fact she was telling me today that last year somebody gave her a lot of money 
like hundreds of thousands and she sowed the seed into a church and she's like how come i'm still suffering even after sowing that seed she has fasted in fact she fasts every day and then it's like and she prays every day but even i from here can see that i'm as in things are even getting worse for this person yeah so it's like how long would one endure this kind of thing without breaking because she's at the point where she's like why me why me you know so this suffering gospel as much as it's it presents a well-rounded path a well-rounded christianity you know less emphasis on prosperity and all that stuff as long as it, it gives it is a complete gospel it's just that it's quite difficult to leave out that process i don't know if you understand what i'm saying yeah. Yeah. so how long can one suffer because <laughs> right now she's likening herself to job even yeah. though she did not have children that died yeah <laughs> yeah um first of all there's no pleasure in preaching this kind of gospel right we could have just we could have just avoided this um first peter chapter four and skimmed over it as though we didn't see it um it's a possibility that's how a lot of people handle it and that's why you don't really see too many studies on first peter anyways because the book is about intense suffering secondly um for most of us, we're dealing with suffering at the moral or intellectual level. You know, we, we look at suffering from outside, right? And even at that, I mean, I've seen intense suffering, intense suffering from my own twin sister that eventually took her life, you know? And you're looking at it from the outside and it's even unbearable by itself, first place. But much remember that what we're reading as stories, right, was written in the heat of the moment. And... There's always a saying that the best time to read scripture is in the heat of the moment. It's easy for you and I to, to read it now. Or it's not easy. It's actually difficult for you and I to appreciate what the apostle is saying 2,000 years later when we're not being tied to the stake and burned because of our confession that we love Jesus. All right? But Peter is not writing to people who are thinking about suffering or people who are writing books about suffering. People, Peter is writing to people who are suffering, who have been, who have lost everything because of their decision for Jesus. The third thing is that um, as long as we're in this world, as long as we're in this flesh, right, there's always going to be the reality of suffering. We don't have time to, to press it much, but I can send us um, in the WhatsApp group some like some notes I prepared about this sometime last year, uh, an end-to-end -end overview of suffering. But you see, as long as you're in this flesh, there's always going to be some suffering. If there is no suffering, then there is no hope of resurrection. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is that as long as God gives someone breath, as long as God gives someone breath, you know, it means that he has a purpose for the person. As long as God continues to speak, you know, I've heard some people in my own experience here ministering to people saying that God promised me all these things, you know, this person prophesied, that person prophesied, and I haven't seen anything come to pass. If God is as much as speaking over one's life, if God is as much as spending to sustain breath, 
You know, it's expensive to sustain prayer. When you lie down tonight to sleep, you don't even know where you are. The only thing you know is that you lie down at 11 and by 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. you just wake up and like, where did I go? Where was I? Who kept me? Who sustained me? It's an expensive arrangement. Not that it costs God himself, but in terms of the value of it, it's costly. If God didn't think that your life was of value, if God didn't think that there was glory to be harvested in your suffering, he would have ended it, right? Um, yeah, but if God gives us breath, it's because there is glory to be harvested. You see, suffering is going to be, and that's the fourth point, I think I've lost count now. The fifth point is that suffering is going to be so much, much more hard to bear if we do not have a clear biblical view of it. Satan is going to colonize our minds with the wrong ideas of suffering, with the wrong ideas of God, with the wrong ideas of ourselves and our situation. And if he successfully colonizes our minds, then he could colonize our faith as well. You know, right? But if we're going to go through suffering correctly, if we're going to, the thing that makes suffering easier is a clear understanding of it, that suffering is not a testimony of the character of God. Suffering is not a testimony of the fidelity of the promise of God. But suffering is only a test. That's why Peter, he knows that some of these Christians are about to be burned alive to the stake. He's saying that before you face that fire, arm yourselves with the same mind, the same mind that Christ had, that even though he saw the cross, he saw the suffering in it, it was going to cost him. He still went that way. You know, most of us, if we count the cause, we don't usually go. But Christ saw it. He knew exactly what it would cost him. And he still went that path. Right? Arm yourselves with that conviction. And Peter, which is the sixth point, has also made it very clear in the scripture that we don't look for suffering. Our suffering does not glorify God by itself. It's only when the suffering is for his sake that it glorifies God. Right? That's why he has been very clear to say, make sure, make sure that if you suffer, you are not suffering for evil doing. Right? You are not suffering because you, 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 you got yourself into trouble. You are not suffering because you didn't pray. You are not suffering because you didn't give. Make sure that that's not your story. And if it is true that that's not your story, then commit. That's what he's going to say at the end of this chapter. Then commit your soul to the one who is able to save you. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He didn't understand why his father forsook him. Or maybe he did, but he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then he said, into your hands, I commit my soul. I don't understand why my life has stumbled upon this path, but, but, but take my soul. Take my soul. Right? So it would be, be nice if I can say to your friend, Stephanie, that, oh, I have the solution to her problem. Maybe I do, but I cannot say that. Right? But the, the, the recommended pattern is to buy weapons when, when suffering hits you. Buy weapons. That's what Peter is saying. Arm yourself with the same mind. Does that make sense to you? Did those, oh, Stephanie, your hand is still up. Do you want to say something? 
Yeah, if I thought her bi-weekly, she's probably just going to get more depressed. So I'm not even going to them. The reason, I told you, she has done a lot of fasting, praying and all. If I tell her that she should do more, oh, well, I'll just leave let me, let me um, um, Let me touch on that point very quickly, right? Um, there is none of us that can fast our way into the mercy of God. And you see, unfortunately, we end up learning this lesson in the hard way. Of course, God invites us to fast. And of course, do not interpret what I'm saying as saying that you shouldn't fast because by the grace of God, I fast, right? But um, part of what God uses our fasting to do is to test our hearts and to clean our hearts. We cannot fast enough to merit God's mercy, right? We cannot pray enough to merit God's mercy. I don't know if you, if you fasted and prayed before and then the moment you finish your fasting and prayer, you fell into sin. I don't know if it has happened to you before. And when I say sin, yes, yes, think about yes. it. <laughs> it has happened to you before. You know, it's those moments that reveal the futility of the fasting and prayer. Right? That if God does not come and help you, the fasting and prayer is just mere religious exercise. The Muslims just finished that. Is it 30 days or more of fasting till the sun went down, sometimes 10 p.m. at night? Right? God has made it very clear the kind of fast that, that, that moves his hand. The reason why we fast and pray often and we don't see anything from God is because even though we are fasting and praying, we are not really touching what God is concerned about, actually. And that is why my recommendation is always, if you're doing something, right, or if you've been doing something and the situation has not changed, ask God what you need to do differently. That's, a, that's an invitation to prophetic praying. If you've been praying kabababashikapa loud in, <laughs> in your loudest possible tongues and the mountain has not moved one inch and you don't even feel in your spirit, you know, there are times when you feel in your spirit that you just need to continue. And you don't even feel in your spirit that this your loud tongues can change anything. You need to stop the loud tongues and then pray without tongues at all. Pray the silent prayer. You know, it's still prayer to pray silently. And say, God, it's not me that needs to talk now. It's you who needs to talk. Stay in God's presence in silence. You know, if fasting, right, has only compounded your woes, right? Say, God, I leave the food. Um, I leave the fast, like fasting of food behind. I'm going to eat my food to the glory of God and I'm going to keep trusting God, right? Um, whatever the case is, it's important for us to, to not have a religious mindset that because we have a hammer, everything becomes a nail in front of us. It's very important, right, for us not to do that. If, I've, if I say that I've done something, because the Bible says that wisdom is justified by her children, Right. This is always a test of, of wisdom. What is her fruits? Like wisdom, right? What has it produced? If I say I have wisdom and it has not produced my expectation, I need to go back to God and say, God, I think I have wisdom, but my fruits illustrate that I don't have wisdom. Because like the children I'm producing are not consistent with what I expect. Right. So let it be God himself who tells you to continue the same routine. But there must be a line drawn where we return to silence 
when it looks as though our loud tongues and shouting and fasting and giving is not moving the hand of God, we return to silence. Because when, when Job's friends finished all their conversation, they now finally kept quiet. And that is what eventually allowed God to, um, to speak and release Job from his sufferings. Right. Obviously, it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not, it's not, I wouldn't say it's not a good message. It's not a, not an easy message, right? But we'll be unfaithful to these Christians who lay down their lives for the gospel. If we come to verses like this and we don't grapple with the intense pain that it took for them to maintain their convictions. And it's not just in their days, but in our day. Peter is saying, arm yourself. See, when suffering comes into your life, there are some baseline things you must get right. There are some baseline things you must get right. The first thing is you must separate your suffering from the love of God for you. If you are not able to do that, and that is what the danger of the prosperity gospel and any gospel that denies suffering is does to believers. Because that gospel insists that if God loves you, then everything goes well. And there's none of us that our life has been a linear graph up to this point. By a linear graph, I mean that if you had thought about your life when you're five years old, you'd have said, okay, when I'm 16, I get to university. When I'm 20, I finish. Then I just wait two years and then I marry at 22. Then I get X job. I build my first house at 30. <laughs> it's a good plan, but obviously it was not good enough for God. And that's why it didn't happen like that for any of us. I don't know about you, but I've not built my house yet. Right? Yeah, when suffering comes into your space, right? That's the first marker you must draw. This thing is not a testimony of the love of God. If you don't draw that marker, if you're not able to arrive, if you're not able to arm yourself with that, then that suffering, instead of profiting you, is going to be, you just, at best, you just endure it. You know, but that's the first marker that this thing is not a testimony of the love of God. The love of God for me is steadfast. Despite this thing, in spite of this thing, regardless of this thing, yes, I need to figure out this thing. I need to solve this thing. I probably need to endure this thing. But it's not a testimony of the love of God. Because Satan will come to you with the opposite of it. That's what Peter is saying. I'm yourself also with the same mind. Okay, Sami. Okay, yes. I just wanted to add something. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, I, I learned a lot from what you said. Um, I think one other thing that, that is also missing is who, you know, in the foundation of uh, of uh, regarding suffering is is because you know when we've got lots of teachings on faith and love, you know, but that hope part is lacking, and it's one of the reasons why I'm very grateful for. The earlier parts of this teaching, you know, that started, you know, First Peter chapter one itself, and also when we studied Hebrews, you know, these two areas mm -hmm. talked a lot about hope, and I got to discover that, you know, hope is usually like we know we talk about faith, love, and hope. Hope is is that that leg of the tripod that grounds us in the face of suffering. And uh, mm -hmm. maybe I, I will just trust, we just trust God that the Lord would cause, you know, more wisdom of hope to flow into the body because 
there is so much teaching and resources on faith and love, but it's very lacking in the area of hope. However, what I just wanted to share, maybe with you, Stephanie, and maybe for all of us, is that um, the, the, the lesson in my little study regarding hope, you know, both in the teachings of the Lord Jesus and in the teachings of the apostles, the, the pillar for the believer to overcome hope is that community, the team spirit of the body of Christ. You know, that team spirit or um, the fellowship or the community of believers. He, 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 from what I've, from my own little study, um, we can feel suffering alone as we can bear the weight or the burden of suffering alone, but we are not designed to go through it all alone. And uh, this is the crucial aspect of prayer. And I, I think that was one of the first things I, I saw, you know, in Job's experience, how that his friends may not have done a very good job, but, but they were there with Job, like they were, they, they sat with him, they were with him all through. And uh, so if I'm to now, you know, connect it to the modern 21st century, you know, church, the context we have, I usually say this, that the biggest lie believers tell every day, like I'm sure that if the record in heaven is in papers, it will be way houses <laughs> of life. Is when believers casually always say, we are praying for you. It's always a cliche. It's always a catchphrase. I, I believe that if we actually pray for people going through challenges, there is always strength. We find strength. Mm -hmm. it, it may not always, and you know, one problem, we one mistake we make, we always, especially like you said, Josh, you know, the whole um, misguided doctrines. I've always made people to feel that the only prayer they can pray in the face of suffering is God take this suffering away. However, there is also the prayer of strength to persevere, strength to overcome. I, I, I watched the marathon and I found out that the people running through the marathon, no matter how tough the marathon is for them, the people on the bile, on the sidelines do not run into the race and run the race for them. They just cheer them. Mm. They give them water, they cheer them. And you know, when, when a fellow brethren, a, a saint is going to such challenges, one of the things also we need to do is we're going to give us that wisdom to support them in prayer, most especially praying that they will find strength and that God will reveal his purpose in that situation for them, just like it happened for Job. So thank you. That's my thought. Yeah, thank you very much, Sami. That's a very 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 important points that i cannot overemphasize enough right the context in which we exist is the context of the body of christ right even though christianity can be intensely personal and so therefore suffering can be intensely personal right like like the christians that were tied to the stick and burned and were used as the as the candle to light up nero's parties which is part of what these christians were used as in those days even though there's that intensely personal side, there's the community aspect of Christianity, like Sami said. You're not supposed to go through things alone. And he, he mentioned a lot on prayer, which is obviously number one. But it's not even prayer that you need all the time, right? Because we are soulish beings also, right? We need emotional support. And that's part of what God has built into the church. Sami said that one of the biggest lies in the church is we are praying for you. I actually believe that the closest, the cousin of that lie, if not the biggest, is I'm fine. You know, how are you? We just have this mindset. At least it's it's 
better, I noticed in Western Christianity. But I feel like in our primarily African context, we, we are always in a hurry to say, I'm fine. You know, as though whatever it is we're going through is for us to deal with. And our brother, our sister doesn't need to know about it. And we're going to talk to them when we are feeling better. You know, I mean, obviously there is a place for that. And, and of course, it's, it's for each person to discern that, okay, this thing is me and God, let's deal with it. And I'll come back. But at least <laughs> there should be a Christian community. There should be a person. There should be people in your life that your answer is not always I'm fine. You know, you can change the answer to I will be fine <laughs> if you want to start a conversation. Um, but we cannot overemphasize the importance of community, right? In endurance of him. Stephanie, your hand was up. Or it's up. Sorry, Joshua. There is suffering, right? But there's also the part of maybe like a demonic attack. So for, for Job, for instance, I would say, you know, I don't know. I mean, when so somebody- I, I know where your question is, is going, right? So do you mind if I just take it from there? Okay, then. It's not always the case. And I've said this in a few forums. It's not always the case that there's a clear distinction between what is demonic attack and what is allowed by God, right? Because if you want to use Job as an example, his problems were caused by demons very clearly, right? yet God was still responsible for it, right? And I'm saying that to say that it kind of doesn't matter who caused the problem, right? Or who's responsible. The thing Peter wants us to know is that you can profit from this experience. If God allowed it, it's because you can profit from it. That's why when the disciples came and asked who sinned that this man was born blind because they were just looking for who to blame. Jesus was not interested in that game. He said, nobody sinned. Even though if he wanted to do a thorough theological work, he could have pointed out who sinned because for sure somebody sinned, at least Adam sinned, right? Or he could have pointed out Satan who was eventually the ultimate sinner, right? And for better or for worse, those sins are a part of why people are born blind. But the point he was trying to make was that when you look at suffering, that's not the first question, right? And that's not even what matters. He said that the glory of God might be revealed in this guy. So if you want to interpret it that, oh, God didn't give him eyes before he was born. And so God wanted Jesus to give him eyes. Well, that's for the glory of God. If you want to interpret it that, oh, demons afflicted this guy when, when he was born, his parents cursed him. Even in that condition, God can harvest glory. The question is, what kind of glory does God want to harvest in my life? Right? So if a condition is demonic, it is possible that God wants to use this condition to teach my hands to fight and my fingers to war or to teach my hands to war and my fingers to fight. And there are many times God does that. And you're going to know because he's going to quicken prayers in your spirit. He's going to quicken things in your spirit. And when you address them like you should, you just notice that, ah, this thing has gone. And you realize that you have entered a new spiritual energy. If, if I should use that word, although that word is overloaded in our generation, you know, but there are many times like Paul, where you can go to the Lord three times and the Lord will tell you that this thing is a messenger of Satan, but let it be there. Right? So, 
we must be careful because it's possible for us to draw it a line and say, okay, some things are from God, some things are from Satan. We fight everything that is from Satan and we endure everything from God. And I'm saying that in practice, in practice, like the line is not always clear. God is sovereign overall. At the end of the day, if something happened, God may not have caused it because he doesn't cause evil, but at the very least, he allowed it. So the question is, what, what is the glory that God wants to harvest from this thing? And we're only going to find out by returning to God, right? by arming ourselves. If when suffering comes into my life, Satan convinces me that this thing is a statement of the love of God for me, right? that God hates me, and that's why this thing is happening. If that is already the mindset with which I'm getting into, then it doesn't even matter at that point if it's demonic or if God allowed it because with such a mindset, right, I cannot even get the benefit that God had in mind. Stephanie, does that make sense to you? Does that, I know, sorry that I cut short your question, but did I hit it, hit the nail on the head with your question? <coughs> yes, you did, but I'm just wondering, while I'm praying, while I'm waiting on God for him to answer and fasting and just engaging with God, trying to build spiritual energy, can I go looking for prophets? Not me, but my friend, because that's what she's thinking. Looking for men of God who can come in to maybe, you know, break the siege or, you know, but you, you just can't sit down and suffer, can you? So I'm mm -hmm. just wondering if there are other things externally that she can do without making herself feel for, look vulnerable to other Christians because other Christians can just say things like, you're not praying enough or things like that. That's why yeah. people say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But she doesn't want yeah. to look vulnerable and stuff. So I'm just wondering... What yeah. would you recommend? Can she go seeking for men of God? And what and... I recommend, what I recommend is to ensure ensure that you look vulnerable, right? That thing that your flesh doesn't want, you know. You know when Hannah finally became desperate, she didn't care if somebody thought she was drunk. You know, um, the same with David after God killed Uzzah, right, or Uzziah for touching the ark. His wife said, "You were dancing like one slave." You know, at that point, he had lost all sense of dignity. And many times, God allows us to get to the place of desperation. Please, I beg you in God's name, look as vulnerable. It is your vulnerability that provokes God. You know, God says that, that even though I'm high in the heavens and my throne is in the heaven and I don't really have much business with it, but to this man, I cannot, I cannot turn my eyes. You know, in the book of Proverbs 24, the Bible says... <laughs> When your enemy falls, don't laugh at your enemy too much, lest God <laughs> sees that they are laughing at the enemy and then God decides, Kai, no, let's, let's end this enemy's suffering. And I can tell you that God has taught me that lesson so many times, you know, that many times God allows people to despise you and you look foolish and vulnerable. And that very act is what gives God permission to do wonders through your life. So it's almost as though when my suffering is much, I'm like, God, who can I ask to insult me? <laughs> who can I ask to belittle me? Eh? Who, like, who can come into my space and just make me look like rag? Let it, let it provoke you that, that your child is looking like this. So please, endeavor <laughs> to look vulnerable, right? If you want to seek out a prophet or whoever, trying to, trying to avoid vulnerability is not God's solution. 
It's not God's mistake. Secondly speaking, I, if you want to go, allow God to, to be the one to lead you. And I can assure you that in the biblical pattern, it's not the most anointed person that prays for the sick. In James chapter 5, the people that pray for the sick are the elders of the church. And the elders don't have a portfolio. They're not even apostles. But they have a rank. And that's why everybody should belong to a local community. They're supposed to anoint you with oil and support you in prayer. If you ignore them, right, and you are seeking something else, it's possible that you're running away from your own, from the solution that God has placed right in front of you. Right? So it's not wrong to seek solutions, but be very careful so that you don't, um, you don't place man in the place of God and fall into the wrong hands. Right? It's, it's, it's very necessary. Peter's recommendation when we're going to soften is, first of all, have the right mindset towards it. Right? Who am I not to suffer? Think about it. That's the only thing I deserve apart from Christ. In fact, it's all, it's, if I don't suffer, it's by the mercy of God. So if it happens that a certain stream of suffering comes into my life, the last thing that it should do to me is to make me change my confession. Right? That's the last thing it should do to me. And if that is going to happen, then I need to arm myself with a mindset that Christ suffered. Now, because of this long discussion, we don't even have time to look at MM to look at the gains of suffering because Peter is going to was going to tell us further down the line that if you endure suffering to the measure to which you endure suffering that's the measure to which the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you friends our reward will not be the same in the afterlife it will not be the same and just in case you think that doesn't matter whatever reward means right we don't know what it means. We don't know if they're just going to put a crown on your head. <laughs> you know the stories we heard as children. We don't know if they're just going to give you a mansion. But whatever it means, the language used in scripture for it is serious language. It matters and it is for eternity. And scripture makes it clear that it is the extent to which our lives is laid down for Christ, to which we endure the persecutions of Christ. Because what you might call the sufferings of Christ in the life of a believer are those sufferings that appear to contradict the nature and power of Christ. So it's not only you who's suffering. Christ is also suffering with you in that situation. And whatever reward is in the life to come, it is not something to, to casually decide that you're not interested in. It is consequential and it is eternal. And Jesus warns warns and encourages of it that the son of man will come and he will give reward and like we have said reward is according to every man's work right salvation is according to every man's faith but reward is according to every man's work and that's what peter is saying if god has counted somebody worthy to suffer for him then the person must realize okay what i'm going through is not normal right I've done everything I know, and it still hasn't changed. So let me now write the things that will not change. And one of them is that I will not stop loving Jesus. I will not stop trusting Jesus. Jesus is much more than divine health. Jesus is much more than financial prosperity. Jesus is much more than a good job. 
Jesus is much more than a good marriage. Jesus is much more than anything that is earthly. Right? And then, of course, everything else that we've said, community, prayer, the things that Sami mentioned, and all of that. Okay? I hope we're able to at least help to touch on that question. Thank you, Joshua. Yes, yeah, we're really, really out of time. But let me just wrap up here, okay? If you can bear with me for a few more minutes. Um, so Peter is saying that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Wow. Who would have thought, right? That one of the things that suffering does is that it, it puts a permanent end to sin in the life of a believer. So that means that suffering, one of the riches or benefits of suffering is that it can build your spiritual strength. You see, if there's no mountain for your faith to face, how will your faith be tested? How will your faith grow? And you see, it's not God's will that all of us will face giant, giant mountains that we have to suffer to, to move. For some of us, it should just be a little delay. You know, oh, you're expecting to be married at 24, and now it's 26. You're not married. That's enough, that's enough suffering in quotes to shake your feet. And it's enough suffering to make you decide that, okay, let my faith face the mountain. And the reason God allowed it to happen, allowed that your perfect plan of marrying at 24 to happen is that he's hoping that your faith can grow. So suffering has that potential to build spiritual strength. Of course, the trouble with us is that we tend to lose heart. Or if we don't lose heart, we become philosophical. We, we start waxing lyrical. You know, we explain away our struggles. But you see, the disciples were not like that. They tried to cast out a devil one time, and it didn't work. And they went back to Jesus and said, Master, why could not we cast him out? Has it happened to you before? You, you, you met somebody, you saw that the person needed deliverance, you know, maybe even saw the demon, and you prayed and nothing happened. You know, it's possible for you to now use scripture and say, no, 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 I don't want to celebrate devils. <laughs> You know, like I heard that one preacher said, I think in Lagos, when he tried to cast out the devil and it was not going, and then he left and said, I don't want to celebrate devils. You know, it's possible for you to, to walk away your pride. But the disciples went to Jesus and said, Master, why could not we cast him out? Have you gone to Jesus? You know, before you go to a prophet, have you gone to Jesus and said, why was she not healed? Why was she not healed? Have you gone to him? And I want to really encourage us because I know that we are prayer people. I know that we can go in tongues for 10 hours. Sometimes, yeah? deliberately leave the tongues out. It's not as though the tongues are wrong, but there are moments when it is God that needs to be talking, not you. And, it's, and in heaven, there are times too when there's silence. You know? So you too need to train your spirit because see the thing that makes us now we're going over time so please feel free to drop if we're taking too much of your time sorry but it's it's good for us to conclude we also started very late but the thing with the speakings of god is that god wants to speak to you and i and the thing that precipitates the speaking of god primarily is the presence of god right 
what we are supposed to do is to saturate ourselves with the presence of God. It's inevitable that the voice of God will emerge. In our context, the way we know how to do that is to blast in tongues with the loudest microphone possible, you know, and sweat our way out of it. But you see, that's not what produces the voice of God. It's in the presence of God. So even if you are just soaking in music, in the silence of that, let your heart and your mind and your, and your soul be fixed on God. And the voice of God will come to you. Create around your life an atmosphere of the presence. I tell you, you'll be walking to the supermarket and you'll be hearing the voice of God as though it is a stream of life. You cannot be discouraged. If I speak in tongues for 12 hours and then when I finish, which has happened to me before, I now fall into sin. That's a sign that I was talking too much. And maybe what I should have done was to speak in tongues 11 hours and then the final one hour I say, God, it's your turn to talk. You know? Right? I'm, I'm just adding that little piece because it's necessary for us to see that God wants to speak and the environment in which God speaks is the environment of his presence. If you want to hear God, cultivate his presence. Yes. And sometimes the way to do that is to speak in tongues loudly and for long or be sensitive to know when this is not helping you, right? And you need to be quiet in God's presence. You need to discipline yourself in God's presence and be quiet and say, God, it's your turn to speak. It's your turn to speak. I don't want to make anything up. You know, I don't want to stir up anything in the flesh. It is your turn to speak. You know, if all he says is I love you, if that's all he finally says, I can tell you when God says something, the thing travels with the energy of God's life. And that simple, I love you, is going to sustain you for the days to come. When Jesus said to the man who was crippled, Bethesda, arise, take up your mat and walk. It's not the English that, it's not the, it's not the letters that, obviously something more than the letters was traveling with that utterance. So in a sense, it doesn't even matter what Jesus said to the person. What happened is that he was at the place where he heard the voice of God. Right? The same voice that Jesus will utter one day and those who are sleeping in the grave will arise from the grave. It, you know, it's by the voice of God that the dead will rise. How much more you and I who are alive, the impact that the voice of God can have on our lives and on our souls. Anyway, I'm digressing. I wanted to summarize this thing. Right. Um, so I was saying that suffering for Christ means that we are broken free, right, from the chain of sin, right? So if you have the pleasure of sin and you choose instead not to satisfy that pleasure, that choice has broken you free from sin. Many people want to break free from sin who are not willing to fight it, right? Who are not willing to suffer. You see, Peter says that he who has suffered in the flesh has broken free from sin. We don't have time to press that point, even though it would have been nice to do so. Um, verse 2, he says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Right. Um, and then he talks about how we spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walk in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, reveries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And then he says that the people who do these things think it's strange that you do not run with them. 
I'm pointing out this to say that this is also its own kind of suffering. This is the pleasures of sin. You know, sin will not be attractive to anybody if he didn't have pleasures. And in the case of these believers, some of the sufferings they were enduring was because they were disciplining their body, just like what Paul said, that I beat my body and I don't give it what it desperately wants. I'm enduring that for the glory of God. And God honors that. You see, the grace of God does not superimpose on your will. Right? Your will needs to make a decision that, okay, I want to walk in righteousness. Now, you will make several mistakes, obviously, but at least your will needs to be involved. It's the exercise of your will that the grace of God then comes to bless. The grace of God then comes to back up. And if you're going to exercise your will against sin, you're going to need to settle it in your heart that, okay, there will be some suffering for a while, right? Some people will not like me. Some people will not rate me. Some people, if, once you settle it in your heart, the burden becomes easy. And he says that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And he says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So Peter is concluding by saying, at least verse 6, um, by saying that we need to always keep in view the judgment of God. Right? Um, I don't have time to press that, but let me just say one thing. that I think I mentioned it in passing earlier. When we read our Bibles, we see that God is going to judge. And the judgment of God is according to works. Now, we must separate salvation from judgment. The fact that you are saved doesn't mean that you will not be judged. The difference is that if you are saved, your judgment is not unto punishment. Because if you are saved and then God judges you unto punishment, then that's a violation of the salvation, right? That's it because... So it's very clear that Christ bore on himself the punishment for sin. But you see, the fact that you're not going to be punished <laughs> does not mean that you're not going to be judged. It's very, very clear through scripture. And please read Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Romans chapter 2, verse 6, 1 Peter 1, verse 17. I listed some scriptures here. Revelation 20, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. I think 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. The fact that you're saved doesn't mean that you're not going to be judged. The difference is that your judgment is going to be for reward. And you might say, okay, if it's just reward, then we can live without it. But you see, the language scripture uses is as by fire, right? That if someone's works are burned, that the person will be saved as by fire. It's, it's not the kind of thing to casually embrace. The gospel is the gospel because it presents the absolute righteousness of God. That righteousness is not scaled down because of the grace of God. The grace of God only creates a premise upon which we can participate in that righteousness. And that's the burden that Peter is trying to communicate. That don't allow suffering make you change your testimony. Don't allow suffering make you embrace sin. Don't allow suffering make you have such a low view of God that sin becomes an option you see because he's going to judge and if it is true that you endure suffering then the extent to which you endure for christ is the extent to which the spirit of glory will rest upon you
All of that is to say that there is reward for every piece of suffering that we endure. Yes, there is reward. There is reward. The Bible says that two are better than one because they have a great reward for their labor. Part of why two are better than one is that two coming together creates friction and suffering. But if they are able to maximize and survive that friction, there is great reward. Yes, there is reward for you and I. And I don't want to miss my reward by the grace of God. I don't want to miss my reward. If God says that there's reward, then I trust him and I believe him. And my prayer for us is that we will embrace the same mind that Christ had. And I don't think that any of us is going to suffer as intensely. Or maybe you're already even suffering intensely. I don't know. But I don't think that that's the case. But God is bringing these things to us because at the very least, he wants us to arm ourselves with the mindset. And for those of us who know people that are going through intense suffering, may we, may we catch a burden to pray for them. May we catch a burden to just sit by them if that's all it takes. May we catch a burden to uphold them before God until we see them come out of it by the grace of God. And I pray that your story will be a story of overcoming. That that testimony of Jesus, he that overcomes, will be your testimony. That it doesn't matter what it is. If it is tiredness, you have to overcome. If it is weakness in your body, you have to overcome. If it is financial hardship that you have to overcome. Whatever it is, if it is delay that you have to overcome, my prayer for you is that you and I will be overcomers in the end. In Jesus' name.